Um, welcome to the 13th annual Tribeca Film Festival. I'm Anna Hall. Um, over the past few days in the Future of Film series, we've heard about fictional storytelling in context with everything from media and um, to uh, neuroscience. And tomorrow we'll hear about uh, storytelling and big data. But today we're going to turn to nonfiction and news. Um, we have an awesome panel um, lined up. And uh, so enjoy. everybody. We're so glad that you're all here. Um, this is the panel on all the news that's fit to shoot, print, tweet, or any other of the many options that are available. Unfortunately, we have to start this panel in a little bit of a different way than we had planned. Uh, you saw Simon Ostrovsky, the vice reporter, in that video. He was kidnapped yesterday. 
in Ukraine by pro-Russian uh, gunmen. So very unfortunately, that has happened. Um, we obviously want to wish him a safest and speediest of returns. But in the meantime, what that means for us here today is the editor-in-chief of Vice, Jason Mojica, cannot be here. Instead, Vice reporter and documentary filmmaker Ben Anderson. Ben, where are you? Oh, there you are. Ben Anderson is here in his place. So we, we wanted to let you know about that. So because of that, we are changing things a little bit in this panel. Um, but obviously, we will get to the main topic in, in just a moment. Let me just tell you a little bit about our wonderful panelists that we have here today. Ben is an award-winning reporter and documentary filmmaker who has conducted in-depth and often secret investigative reporting from places like Iran, Iraq, North Korea, Syria, um, North Korea, Syria, and, and Libya. So Ben, welcome, and thank you very much for being with us. Karen Lee is also here. Karen is a seasoned foreign correspondent. She is the managing editor of Syria Deeply, which is an independent digital media project comprised of journalists and technologists who are exploring new models of reporting and storytelling around global crises. She is currently based in Turkey, from where she has been reporting on Syria's refugee camps. Karen, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Thank Thanks you. for coming up from Washington. My pleasure. Um, Yvette Alberdink, team, say it for me. I know I've known her for many years, and I still can't say her name <laughs> exactly right. But um, Yvette is the executive director of Witness, a human rights advocacy organization which was founded by Peter Gabriel. Their mission is to support and amplify the work of citizen journalists, uh, their fights to end human rights abuses all over the world. And we'll talk a little bit more about what Yvette's organization does. Yvette, thank you for being here. Eli Pariser comes from the world of politics and campaigning. He is the co-founder of Upworthy, one of the fastest growing and most popular viral video websites in the world. The site curates and propagates social cause video to millions of people. And prior to that, Eli was one of the forces behind moveon.org. Eli, thank you for being here. And last but certainly not least, uh, Max Posterofkin. Did I say it right? Okay, good. Is a documentary filmmaker and co-director of Pussy Riot, a punk prayer. Anybody seen it? Yeah. It's wonderful, um, and, and available on HBO Go. Should you, if you are a subscription, if you have a subscription, definitely worth seeing. It's really wonderful. He has a new film, The Notorious Mr. Bout, which is about Russian arms dealer Victor, Victor Bout, which was screened at Sundance this past January. So welcome, everybody. So great to have you here. Ben, talk to us a little bit. Obviously, we can't discuss um, the specifics of Simon's kidnapping, uh, but we can talk about what happened to you, actually, in Iran. So can you share a little bit about your story? Uh, in 2003, I was working uh, without official permission in Iran, um, interviewing dissidents there who had taken part in the famous uh, street protests. Uh, was arrested by the secret police and held for a week. Um, physically, wasn't treated too badly. I mean, a little bit of knocking around, but nothing. Nothing. They were very careful not to leave marks, but threatened with, with execution and torture. Um, but released after a week, which afterwards, I was told, was, was normal if two countries have diplomatic relations. And actually, just after me, there was a Canadian-Iranian photographer who was arrested by the same people, and she was beaten to death. Um, so I think 
while it is dangerous for us to go to these places, sometimes you, you're always aware, especially with your fixers or translators, that for the people who live in these countries, the local or, reporters, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's much worse for them. And then that, you know, we we've got a return ticket in our pocket, which we pretty much know we can use almost whenever we want. You know, they have to stay, and and, and people know where they live, so right. the risks they take are. Whenever, if you go to Afghanistan or somewhere and someone, someone talks about you being brave for going there, you can't really take it seriously when you know how brave Pakistani journalists or whoever are to be reporting you know, in their neighborhoods. You know, according to Reporters Without Borders, the number of kidnappings of journalists has actually doubled in the past year. Any idea why those numbers are skyrocketing? I mean, it's, it's a business in lots of places now. Mm -hmm. It gets headlines in lots of places now. Um, I mean, you know, we, were, we, we went somewhere recently, um, Yemen, and ordered some flak jackets because we were going to spend some time with the rebels, and the flak jackets arrived, and they were bright blue. Uh-oh. I said, look, no one, you shouldn't ever wear bright blue flak jackets. You know, no one respects the neutral colors of blue anymore. As a journalist, you are a target, so you right. try not to look like a target. Um, but that's, the, I mean, even, you know, obviously places where there are rebels, journalists are a target for money or for headlines, but, but even I've had two colleagues killed in, in Israel by the IDF. Um, so wherever you are now, I think advertising yourself as a journalist doesn't doesn't not a good idea. Makes it more dangerous in right. some cases. Yeah. Karen, talk to us. You've been very recently in the midst of the very bloody civil war in Syria. What is it like? I think so often we don't understand, but as a reporter being on the ground in the middle of that conflict, what is it like from really a safety perspective? You know, it's much worse than what you see or hear about, and it's getting worse every day as the conflict gets worse. Um, I went in a year and a half ago, and we went in illegally over the mountains like you're supposed to with a guide from the Free Syrian Army um, and spent about a week in Latakia with them. Um, and now you can't do that. Now the same brigade that I was with is pretty much decimated. Extremists have taken over the area. It would be impossible to get back and retrace my steps, and that's only a year and a half of this conflict. That's not 10 years. Um, it's extremely dangerous for journalists. The fewer journalists that go in, the bigger a target you are. The ransoms have increased. There are a lot of people being held that you don't hear about, um, a lot of foreign journalists. Where I know for, I have one friend who's been there for about 10, 10, 11 months, and his family has a couple million dollars in cash at the ready, and they don't know who to give it to. They don't know who has him. Um, so it's really hard once people disappear to find out where they went. Syria's a bit of a black hole for journalists. It's incredible. It really is. It's, you're right. I don't think that we do understand the depths of what reporters on the ground in these hotspots are dealing with. Exactly. And I mean, Syria is, and I'm sure Ben can attest, I mean, Syria is a, a very different thing than anything I've seen in Afghanistan, in Libya, anywhere else in the world. Um, they think you're a spy. They want to take you no matter who you are. If you're a Westerner, you have a big X on your back. And if you go in, it really has to be now for three or four hours. You go to a town near the border. It's literally storyboarded. You know, ISIS is 100 kilometers away. We're going to go 40 kilometers over the border. We have three hours to report and get out. And by the time you get to hour four, you're a little bit nervous. And that's really not the way to tell the story because what you're getting is so shallow. You mm -hmm. can't report an entire story of a, an entire city in four hours. But it's the most we can do. Yvette, it's interesting because here are reporters speaking about, they are reporters with press cards. Not that we also saw how valuable a press card might be, but they're with organizations. They are there. They do have a press card. You are working with citizen journalists. Yes. Can you first of all define for us what is a citizen journalist and what are the issues that they were dealing with? I mean, I think that uh, Ben's point was, was well taken that perhaps the most dangerous part are the people that are reporting 
from the location that don't have the return ticket back to America. Yeah, it's actually the interesting order um, to arrive uh, here uh, with me because we witness support the millions of people that are, have picked up their mobile phones. And so many people now have video-enabled cameras in their pockets. And many of those people are brave citizens who are documenting their commu communities and are exposing the violence and the abuse that's actually happening around them. So I would say that many of those people are actually extremely at risk. We've seen it in Syria, um, where people who live in a neighborhood in Aleppo who are accidental human rights defenders now are the first-hand witnesses who are actually documenting the atrocities of the Assad regime and, and are at massive risk, not only from the regime itself, but from ISIS and, and definitely. And many of these citizen witnesses, it is, by the way, you know, on an optimistic note, it's an amazing uh, tool and it's an incredible way to expose human rights abuse and the fact that that technology is in many people's hands. People don't necessarily... Because the reporters can't necessarily get in to where the yeah. people are actually yeah. living, right? Yeah. And, and they now they have there. cameras. They live there. They can't leave. It's their communities. Um, and I think also they frequently are the people who understand best what the situation is and, and but don't always have the tools to be safe or sometimes their stories will not be trusted. So we train and equip people like that to actually ensure that uh, they're a little bit safer and that their stories actually make a difference. How do you train them? How do you help them be safer in places that are just inherently so unsafe right now? Yeah, I, well, I think a lot of it has to do with sort of basic security, like we have tip sheets on how to film in a protest or basic safety and security tips, but also a lot of it is around um, when you tell your story, um, how do you make sure that that story can be verified? If there's a tribunal five or ten years down the line, how do you ensure that we, people understand when, where, and, and how that actually, actually happened? And if you look at the video that started in the very beginning in Brazil, what's been amazing is communities in Brazil, when the protests erupted in June, um, which were peaceful protests, um, protesting is not a crime, last I checked, but the Brazilian government, uh, and particularly the police, responded with extraordinary violence and abuse. And, and what happened is ordinary citizens were actually filming that. So what happened with that is we supported people to actually put that video together that was uh, presented to the Inter-American Commission, which is basically a human rights monitoring body, and it actually put a massive amount of pressure on the Brazilian government, because what if you have many, many of these citizen shot videos showing how systemic the abuse is, um, it actually, frankly, made the Brazilian uh, government look extremely foolish, and they now have to respond to, um, really, evidence of, of mass police violence and abuse. Eli, let's talk about Upworthy. First of all, why don't you explain exactly what Upworthy is? But my question is, you know, Yvette uses the word brave journalists, right? Whether it's citizen journalists, whether it's professional journalists, but oftentimes a lot of that work and the important work that is being done out in the, you know, in the field, so to speak, isn't getting communicated to the public. And I know that that's something that Upworthy really tries to bridge that gap. So can you tell us a little bit about what you're trying to do? Sure, yeah. So, um... You know, I think it's a paradox of the internet age that it's more possible than ever before to know what conditions look like on the ground in different places to get, um, you know, to, to uh, see the, the, the raw video of what's happening. Um, but that doesn't actually mean that people are better informed about it. 
And in fact, if you look at, uh, in general, people's uh, informedness about foreign affairs now versus 30 years ago, Americans aren't better informed at all. So something's not working. And um, you know, we see amazing journalists like, like all of you and, and, and you're you know, sort of activists on the ground doing this incredibly important work and ask the question, how do you get that out to the millions of people so that, you know, the, the, I thought the, the Jefferson quote that we started with was actually really great, which is, you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna um, you know, have a working democracy, people need to be informed about what's going on. So with Upworthy, what we've tried to do is uh, to curate and lift up the very most salient, engaging um, pieces of content that we can find around important topics so that we can engage a large audience a, a, around that. And um, what's exciting to me is I think a lot of people have written off large chunks of the public. A lot of people sort of have ceded to uh, reality TV, you know, a big chunk of, of, of the American public. They're never going to be interested in this stuff. They're never going to be engaged. And what we're seeing is, you know, that uh, very unlikely content, content that no one would ever think was going to be viral, um, like that video that's a 13-minute video about the experience of being stopped and frisked in New York can reach millions and millions of people if you, if you actually think about distribution in a smart way, if you engage people around it and make it sound like it's going to be interesting and not sort of ponderous and, and difficult and dull. It's like cooking the Brussels sprouts with, with something good. Maple right? syrup, a little maple yeah, syrup. Yeah, and it, that's it up. It's delicious. I'm so sorry, but that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> but I guess that, Eli, my question is, if you do that, right, yeah. if you add the maple syrup in, are you getting people to watch what are real? I mean, the stop and frisk is a, such a great example. We've all heard about it, but do people really understand what that experience is? Um, are you getting people to watch? Yeah, so, I mean, that's And how do you know? Well, so we, we actually have a, a metric that we use. We, you know, a lot of people count page views, and page views are... Um, you know, a kind of, uh, it's a very tricky, uh, easily, t easily faked metric. Um, you can do a lot of slideshows and all of a sudden you're getting tons of page views. But what we, what we watch is something called attention minutes, which actually measures, are people engaged? Are they, are they sticking through this? Or are they kind of like checking it out and going on to the next thing? And what's really exciting is, you know, for the stop and frisk video or for, um, we have a partnership with Human Rights Watch where we're, um, you know, distributing some of their content. We had a 14-minute video on uh, North Korea and what it's like uh, on the ground in North Korea that has, you know, done incredibly well. I think it's 7 million attention minutes, you know, over a, over a couple days. Um, you know, that's very exciting. So we're actually seeing that uh, when you present this stuff in a compelling way, people, people do come in. And I just want to add, you know, I think, um, you know, if, if you think about this whole process as an ecosystem and you think about the risk and reward for the folks on the ground for, to doing what they're doing, um, and this was a point that was originally made to me by Steve Grove, I think, at YouTube, um, you know, it's different if you're on the ground to say, I'm going to take this video, but maybe no one will ever see it, than to say, I'm going to take this video and I know where I can put it, where it will be seen and where it will have an impact. And I think the more that we can demonstrate that there is a place like Witness or like Upworthy where these videos can go and actually have some kind of impact, the more willing people will be to actually do the risky work on the, on the front mm -hmm. end of, of creating them. Right, if you can get it seen, right? Yeah. And I, I didn't see much maple syrup on that video clip. And I think what's great about all these new organizations is 
they're completely ignoring the rule which I've heard for the last 12, 13 years, which is young people in particular aren't, aren't interested watching, in current right. affairs. I That's think they exactly are. That's exactly right. Yeah. They just don't want to be patronized when no, they're when they're a when really, they're really good point. Max, I don't want to leave you out of the conversation. So sorry to put you down there at the end. But um, we are going to run a clip, but I want to wait before we do that, before we run a little um, clip from Pussy Riot, Anything that you want to add about the Simon Ostrowski abduction yesterday in Ukraine? Well, I was going to follow up on something that Eli just said, because for me, what, one of the most interesting kind of questions is about the, I think that right now, a lot of people will acknowledge that we're living kind of through a golden age of documentary and documentary film. And for me, like I came to filmmaking through um, working kind of as a media historian and writing, and I was always interested in what happens to the way that we learn about the world when we move from essentially a verbal model, a print model, and a linguistic model to a visual one. And how does that change? And I think that everyone here is actually working on that. How does the visualization of information, how does it transform what we actually learn about the culture? And so for me, it's always important with documentary film, and you'll see in this clip a little bit, is to think about how you can work as almost a counterbalance to a lot of journalism and force a certain kind of ambiguity into it. You know, John Cassavetes used to say this great thing, that if, you know, if people aren't coming out of a movie theater arguing about what they've seen, you've messed up and you haven't done your job. And I think that actually in documentary, a lot of times that's not the case. A lot of times there's this big chord at the end where you know exactly where you're supposed to be emotionally. And I think that as documentary filmmakers, I think a lot of times the responsibility is to go up, to go against that tendency, to force people to actually confront their ignorance, to leave with in a sense, more questions and knowing. And so in every movie that I've done, I try to put this one moment that works as kind of a media critique, and I think that this is one of them. All right, that's a, a perfect lead-in. We're going to take a look at a clip of uh, Pussy Riot, A Punk Prayer. Max, why that clip? And for me, I think that what I love about that moment is that literally within 40 seconds, you see them completely deconstruct what's happening to them in a way that probably if you were writing about it, if you were trying to explain it, it would take pages. And what's interesting is that I think that when you're watching that, you, I myself, and then I think as a viewer, you realize you're suddenly aware of, a, of a, your own constructions and your own agendas you've been placing on them. And, the, and this ability to be to escape that by just being in that moment, I think, is 
is essential to what documentary can do. It's that kind of ambiguity of lived experience that's so, you know, I think that's so priceless. And, you know, I think that that's ultimately the, the counterbalance that we should be bringing in. So, Max, there was plenty of coverage, news coverage, mm -hmm. about Pussy Riot. Um, and I'm curious, I mean, I come from a news background and moved into documentary filmmaking. Why did you decide, especially given the fact that the story was out there, why did you decide to make a documentary? Well, I, I grew up in Moscow and I had been sort of into very, I, I knew one of them growing up and I had been in, into like avant-garde art. Which one did you know? I can't say. Okay. <laughs> but uh, I'm not, not one of the three. Oh, okay, I, got I, it. I know them now, but... Um, and for me, there was this sense that the story was both incredibly misrepresented in the West and in Russia. So I think that in, in Russia, it was seen, it was much more seen apolitically, that they were sort of just these vulgar hooligans who were disrespectful and went and, and desecrated a church. And uh, in the West, it was also this kind of equally re reductive thing that it was like, these girls went to jail because they because they sang a song against Putin, which is also kind of nonsense because if you look at what they had done before, a lot of their other performances, I mean, they sang a song called Putin Pissed Himself on the Red Square and had nothing happen to them. So I think that the story was so much more interesting, and this, at least for me, the story was about the radicalization of society along left-wing and right-wing lines. And it's actually a moment where sort of a radical left and the radical right came out. And, and to bring it back to maybe to the Ukrainian situation right now, that's actually, I think, what we're seeing is the radical right elements of society coming, coming to sort of embrace their own political voice, which a lot of times they didn't have. So in the story of Pussy Riot, it was the, of a fundamentalist religious communities that in Russia had been abused, uh, that had been repressed, but suddenly came to have this, see themselves as, as political agents. So a quick filmmaking question. How are you picking up their audio in there? There's a shotgun mic above the cage, above the, okay. above the aquarium, sorry. Had to ask. Um, all right, I'm gonna, before I ask another round of questions, I just want to let you guys get involved in this conversation. Any questions from the audience that you'd like to ask our panelists? Don't be shy. Okay. Hi. I think I see a hand in the lights. Hi. Or in, in the U.S.? Yeah. It's a great question. I mean, it's kind of, um, that's, that's a really great question because your access was incredible. And in documentary, well, you know, it's all about access. That's one of the, and that, you know, there's so many elements in the Pussy Rat story that actually don't make, you know, earlier I was talking about these kinds of boxes that we can put them into or agendas that they can be used to, to promote, whether it's human rights or center. But then there are also all these very strange things that don't seem to line up. So basically the trial was filmed at their request. So in other words, there was a motion during the trial raised by the women themselves. And then as a result, it was filmed. Parts of it weren't, like when the witnesses against them testified that it was their right not to have that film. But miraculously, the judge granted the motion early on. And so, Lucky you. Yeah. Lucky us. Um, any other questions? Yes. So I think one of the tools that Vice uses a lot is the documentarian as a character in their films. And I was wondering how they justify the use of that tool, seeing as how you said there's an X on every journalist's back now. I mean, the documentary always comes out weeks after you've left. 
Um, they don't all have the host. Um, I mean, I think anyone who worked with you and is still there is in, is in far more danger. Even with the internet, I don't think it's got to the point where any of the journalists working there would be recognized and would be a target of authorities, although obviously with news now, Simon was putting out reports every day. Possibly mm -hmm. that had an effect, I, I don't know. With documentaries, it's far. I mean, you can get access to all kinds of people if you say to them, I want to spend five weeks following you, and then I'm going to spend three months editing the film, and then it's going to come out. Uh, you can get access to all kinds of things. If you're putting stuff out every single day, it, it makes life a lot more difficult, not just for, for reasons of security. Did you have a question? Here, coming right over here. But you can probably just speak loudly. So my question is uh, across the panel. Just, uh, just an observation, just to get your thoughts about this uh, particular trend. But as we get more and more people reporting and more and more points of views, about what's going on. Is news just going to become like narrative and not really still stick to, to I guess, the, the, um, the, the basic principles of journalism in a sense? Do they become less and less relevant um, as, as, more, as, as we get more and more data points in the past, basically? Yeah, that's a really great question. Karen, we were talking about that a little bit while we were waiting to come in and about the, you know, there, is so, there are so many ways to get news. So whether you read an article in the New York Times or you're following a Twitter feed, you're going to get a very different um, body of information. So do you want to respond to that? Yeah, I mean, there's a proliferation now of sites like ours where we have a role that we didn't, you know, didn't exist 50 years ago and might not exist 50 years from now, where I look at Twitter and I look at Facebook every day and I look at it in English, I look at it in Arabic, and there's this completely different narrative most days than what you see in something like the New York Times. Um, and is our role now going to be to bridge those? Are we going to be kind of traffic police? Do we act as filters for, you know, we're not on the ground like people on Twitter, but we're not in an office in New York like a lot of people at major media publications. So we have an entirely different role. And right now I think we're working to establish what that role is. You know, are we filters? Are we journalists like in the past where we're interviewing five people on the ground, five activists, five people from the opposition side, five analysts sitting in London, and trying to call the story from that, trying to figure out what the story is. Are we doing straight interviews? We do a lot of Q&As now, where we just have this long, in-depth interview with one person who's on the ground. Or you might have an interview with one person on one side of a conflict, on one side of a battle, and one interview with one person on the other side of a battle. And the question for me every day is, is that a better way to tell the story of a particular battle than for me to write some kind of narrative analysis like you would have read in Time 10 years ago? And what's the better way of telling a particular story? And does it come down to the story itself? Or does it come down to kind of innovating new ways of journalism? I mean, is it better to tell Syria in that way versus you need something from the White House where you have the thousand word analysis? It's not going to work to do an in-depth interview with Jay Carney and an in-depth interview with somebody else. Um, so I think based on access and based on each story, the way that we tell the story is going to change, if that makes any sense. Yvette, do you want to? Yeah, I, I, and I think that makes a lot of sense. I think to add to that, let's, let's, I don't know that traditionally, for example, the voices of marginalized communities or, uh, or the voices of survivors of abuse really have been telling the story. So, so I think what's really fascinating now that so many people are telling the story, I would question a little bit, like, what is the, the, the journalism narrative that might be disappearing? Maybe there's a whole new narrative that's actually emerging that's telling important stories from perspectives that because there were a few people kind of 
acting as gatekeepers or as cur whatever sub subjective curators, those stories weren't told. So we launched a human rights channel in partnership with YouTube and Storyful. And the whole point of that was making sure that there were verified citizen stories that actually were amplified and, and curated. Because there is still, a, to, to Eli's point, there is a need to curate. There's a need to make sure people actually find find these stories. Um, so, so I actually really like the idea that, that, that these other stories are also coming to the fore. And then let the public decide which narratives they feel are the most uh, important ones. Go ahead, Eli. Go ahead. Uh, the, uh, you know, to, to speak for a moment in defense of narrative, uh, you know, I think clearly there's an important role for, um, for, you know, subject matter experts to come in and, and figure out what the, what the truth is. But I think it's equally important, uh, you know, we know quite clearly now that the way that people come to understand and to empathize with and to care about uh, public topics has as much to do with the, uh, the story that's told and the emotional components of that story as the facts. And that simply saying, you know, um, X million people die a day because of uh, the war in Syria, it's actually much less uh, compelling and much less useful in certain ways than saying, here's what this actually looks like on the ground. Here's what's happening. And multiply that by, you know, by this number. That's the scale of this thing that's going on. And so I do think uh, it's not all bad. I, personally, I would say it is going to move more in a narrative direction. And there's some good things about that, because it's actually you know, narratives are engaging. And I think narrative doesn't have to mean it's, it's one-sided. Um, I think the frustration with news is the headline will be a drone strike um, blew up a school and killed five children. Someone from the government will say they were five militants preparing a giant attack. Now, here's Tom with the weather. Um, you know, I think if you're a documentary maker, you're either there when it happened or you're there straight after it happened, and, and you're showing footage of at least the aftermath, maybe the thing happening, and it's, and it's evidence. It's not, here's one side, here's the other side, make up your own mind. We're there, hopefully, long enough, and we've got long enough to tell the story properly, where I think good documentary is evidence, not, not two opposing points of view. And, and really, hopefully, it happens in real time. Yeah. So you don't need necessarily yeah, both sides I think of the if story. It's not if you're not capturing it on camera, then you weren't in the right place or you weren't there for long enough. That's right. Yeah. Max? But I think there is also a little bit of a, of a danger in the extent to which, we're, specifically with citizen journalism, the extent to which sort of anecdotal things become representative and they become representative of larger issues, which isn't always valid. And I think that that's one of the trends that's been happening. I often think back that there's this... Um, Gilbel's quote that, that propaganda is in fact its interpretation and I think that recently there's been a lot of a shift towards the direction of kind of emotional interpretation in the news and what you see in Russia right now with the federal channels like on the news all you see are these kinds of home video on the federal channels all you see these home video films about these uh, let's say Russians being picked on by nationalists all these things so it's this kind of emotional chord being played over and over again and it's actually not there as many fascists in Ukraine as there are in Russia are nationalists. And, but again, that creates the atmosphere. And that movement away towards greater entertainment and greater sort of narrative it does come with that pitfall a lot of the times. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, the danger when you have that many citizen journalists is trying to maintain some form of accuracy because everyone's saying something, you know, 26 people, you know, the opposition will tell you 26 people died and then five days later you find out two people died. I mean, a, a friend of mine was writing a story for a major mainstream publication about Kurdish militants and he went to Kurdistan, Syrian Kurdistan, and um, he was told by everybody on the ground, and he saw it all over social media, that Kurdish militants were wearing spoons around their necks, so when they got to heaven, they could eat with Allah. And then it turns out that that was absolutely false, and it had spread throughout the entire community. He had to pull it out of his story at the last minute. No. And that's not something that you would have run into five years ago, even. Um, but now you really have to put in that extra effort where every single fact you have, if you got it off of Twitter, you have to double-check it with, like, ten people and you just never know. Um, and it's interesting because so many of the major, quote-unquote, major news outlets have been infected in some way yeah. by this. And it gets back a bit to what you're really trying to do, which is how do we know, and how this, actually how this panel started was the question, how do you know that what you're seeing is in fact real and what you're seeing? Yeah, I mean, to put it in context, I think we collaborated on a verification handbook. There are sort of best journalistic principles, some of which you clearly are applying to actually verify things. But in addition to that, there's technology. So one of the things that happened in Venezuela is um, there was a, a group that created a little app that with every video that came out, it actually had the metadata, so it showed the date and the place and the street. So that actually makes it instantaneously much more uh, credible or at least authenticatable, if that's a word, as a story. And Sounds and good to us. Yeah. Yeah, and with this, we've been working with uh, the Guardian Project, which are amazing Android developers. And what they're doing is we, we're created, we created an app called Informacam that actually marries all that metadata, all that data that your phone constantly captures that, that invades your privacy left, right, and center, right? Like where you are, who's around you, compass, all that stuff. But then if you could actually marry it securely with that video, now you have a story that can no longer be denied. So that's important for journalism, but it's incredibly important if you're a human rights defender or a survivor of an abuse and, and your story will per se be denied. So these are the tools. I mean, but no story. I mean, it's incredibly hard to, to, to prove beyond any doubt that a story is accurate. And sometimes you look at many different. We got one video of a very extreme abuse in Sudan and then we, uh, people were trying, asking us, is, is this actually real? And then when, when uh, one of the, my witness colleagues put it through a reverse image search, it turned out to be a video from a few years ago. So there are actually sufficient tools um, to, to, to start doing that better. Yes. I'm just curious from, well, first, thank you. All five. I have just or six. I, I have okay. just incredible, <laughs> sorry, incredible respect for for the work that, that you do. But I, I guess specifically for for these two here, what, from a personal perspective, what's it like to come back from these wildly dangerous situations and then come back home? You know, it's uh, jarring. Um, I came out of Syria on New Year's Eve, so I'm in this hotel in Antakya by myself on New Year's Eve, and then um, got on a plane like six hours later and was back in Istanbul having New Year's brunch. And the night before, you were in Latakia, you know, dancing with rebel fighters, and they were offering you a plate of dead birds for dinner. And it's hard to believe that they're on the same planet. Um, that's just, I mean, I was telling somebody this the other day, I was like, I cannot believe that Syria is on the same planet as Times Square. It's, you know, um, 
and I think you just have to kind of go into it and treat it like a work assignment and come back out of it. It can't consume you. Um, people stay too long. So I think Ben gets back out and I get back out once the story is done. You don't stick around. I think getting out to a country which doesn't really seem at all interested is, is the, the hardest thing. You know, you, you go through this yeah, yeah. massive endurance test and come out the other end and think, well, at least I've got something really important. And then you kind of think, yeah, may, may, I, mean, I mean, like, you know, the, the, the best place, you, you, you could do a feature-length documentary that goes to the festivals, win the awards, and you think most of that audience probably had an opinion already on this, probably followed this story pretty closely and, and knew quite a lot about it. Did I really have any impact whatsoever? Um, I, I tend to think if I quit tomorrow, it wouldn't make much difference whatsoever. Oh, don't say that. But if everyone quit, yeah. everyone, in ev doing this in every single form, then a lot of places and a lot of people would be able to get away with, with much worse things than they are getting away with. So that's... That's kind of the small consolation. You know, something that I want to add as well, um, I think oftentimes we focus in, on what's happening around the world and the atrocities that are happening around the world. As somebody, I spent a lot of time reporting here in New York, and I've got to tell you, sometimes when you say the thing about these, you know, you can't believe that 42nd Street exists with these other countries in the world, it. but sometimes you can't believe what, what happens in our own backyard and the poverty and the inequalities that happen right here in our own city, in our own backyard. And sometimes I would come home and think, whoa, how is this actually possible? So it happens also you know, right here in our own country. And I think we have to be so careful to remember that we've got plenty of problems right here as well that need to be highlighted and reported. And OK, just my little spiel. But <laughs> yes. So actually, I just want to add to what you just said, because I've been teaching for about 17 years at Stanford University. Uh, it's a documentary focusing on human rights issues. So exactly what I do with my students, uh, we are at Stanford, but we cross the highway and we are in East Palo Alto. So actually, I take my students and give them an assignment to go to East Palo Alto and solve some problems that they solve from the documentaries. And obviously, for all these brave journalists, uh, we established a weekly presentation of uh, some of the films from around the world with the journalists who are actually teaching the young people who are going to lead us in the future. So that's just a Thank small. Thank you. Thank you for your comment. Can I, can I just add on that? Yes, the, you may. The, I mean, I think this is one of the things, you know, why, why do documentary? Why, why do media? You know, and I think one of the reasons really is that um, your, your viewers or your readers get to step a little bit into your shoes and have an experience that they wouldn't be able to otherwise. And it's, you know, a form of, uh, you know, teleportation almost, whether it's around the world or, you know, just, um, you know, when I watched the Stop and Frisk video, right. it's like, I, I don't know what it's like to be a young black man in New York, and I never will. And that is as close as I've come, and it really leaves an impression because you, you feel how humiliated you would feel if every time you were going on the subway someone was you know, treating you this way. Um, and so I think uh, you know, that's, that's, to me that's part of why I'm so appreciative of the work that folks here are doing is, is it does give people a little bit of a chance to step in other people's shoes that they, they'll, never, they'll, never be, you know, they'll never be living that life. Yeah, I think you, you lose an audience that they don't identify with who you're talking about. Um, if it just kind of seems like something that's happening way over there and they don't understand it, they're never going to pay attention to it. They're never going to want to understand it. 
And if it's a story about an 18-year-old boy, it kind of reminds them a little bit of them, and they can really step into their shoes and be like, well, what if my house had just been blown up and I didn't have any money and I had to go across a border to another country? I mean, like, people don't really understand the Syrian refugee crisis until I go, well, what if America was getting blown up and you had to leave California and you had to go to Canada and you had to live in a tent on a border? And they're like, oh, it sounds bad. Um, and then they kind of start to identify a little bit, and then maybe they start to ask some more questions. Yeah, I think, Eli, it gets to what you're doing, which is exactly. so important. It's really um, important. It's so easy for us to say, well, it's happening all, you know, there. It's, it's, I've got so much to worry about in my own little sphere. I don't really need to worry about that, and I think yeah. that's what you're doing so wonderfully. And there's an extra difficulty with foreign stories. It feels like the media can only really cover one mm -hmm. at a time. And yeah, I, I it just, does, doesn't it? I'm just finishing a film uh, for Vice now about um, Sudan. Um, you know, I mean, everyone probably remembers five years ago, George Clooney, Angelina Jolie, you know, billions of dollars raised. Five years, in the last 12 months, there were 500,000 new refugees fleeing Sudan. The same guys bombing the same people. And we, we, went, we went back there just a few weeks ago, and I don't know, if you asked most people who were involved in the appeals and stuff back then, they'd probably say, oh, that, that crisis was over, wasn't it? Didn't we didn't Right, we didn't that movie them? end? Yeah. yeah, and it's, I mean, some of the, some of the people who just fled Darfur said to us, it's worse now than it was then, and yet that story just vanished completely. But just to, to give Ben a little bit of hope, I, I, you know, <laughs> Witness has, for the last 20 years, we've worked with people where, so we, to, who create their personal stories became tools for justice, right? And we know that visual stories, to, to Eli's point, have an amazing way to catalyze uh, justice, to change the minds of decision makers, right? And I think, some, to, to Eli's point, there is an ecosystem. So some of that ecosystem means getting these Brazilian videos in front of the Inter-American Commission. Brazil now has to respond. That's not a wasted effort. You just told me before about a documentary that you made that was screened in Parliament, and you slightly disappointed to this point by the reaction. But <laughs> if that, if you can take that as a campaign and you can keep screening it, and it will force people to actually take action. Like I mean, over the years it, with Witness, it has put warlord be, warlords behind bars. It has catalyzed laws in America to protect elderly people from abuse. I mean. That is, I think, an, the power of visual media. So I think particularly at a Tribeca audience, sometimes we think, oh, who is this audience? Like, there's an ecosystem. You need a movement. You need people who are going to put the stuff in front of the right decision makers and not give up. You need the journalists to tell the story. So I think that actually has impact. Just you a know, hopeful note. Thank you for that hopeful yeah, sorry. note. <laughs> but then I think to your point, you're right. We have a limited ability to watch international stories. I always thought the best thing that happened to Putin was the disappearance of the Malaysian you know, jet plane because all of a sudden you know, we, were, we shifted and we were so focused on what was happening there. We took the eye off the ball for a moment. Yeah. And, and they are. You know, I, mean, I mean, even you probably for Russia, even if it's a country where you spent some of your childhood there, you speak the language, they are complicated issues. So it's That's just, right. To expect someone who's maybe struggling to pay the bills to keep up with six or seven major, it's, 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 it's a tough ask. Um, but having said that, I don't think it needs to be made entertaining or you don't have to have a celebrity attached. You know, there are enough people that will watch and then hopefully sometimes it will That's true. make the impact you're talking about. Max, anything you want to add to this before I go on? No, not to the... Okay, I just thought I'd check in with you. <laughs> um, yes. Hi, my question's for Karen. Um, at my university, I'm doing research of women in media, do you feel that there's enough women doing what you're doing and do you feel that you're treated differently because you're a woman going out into these countries? I think I talk about this every day. Um, there's a really large portion of Syria coverage being done by women and a lot of new media startup is being done by women. Um, it's a really different reporting situation for women versus men. 
and I think Ben and I have probably had polar opposite experiences in the same countries, a lot of times we get better access. Um, most women on the ground that at least I've worked with will not talk to a man. If you're trying to interview a rape victim, you've got a much better chance of getting an interview as a female journalist. Um, although, I'll let you chip in in a minute. Um, but then you deal with other stuff. I mean, you've got fixers who hit on you. You've got fighters who hit on you. You've got all kinds of incidents. You've got to go in. You've got to look. I always look terrible. I've got a special drawer full of clothes that I call the dangerous places drawer. And it's the jeans that are three sizes too big and the big jackets and put a scarf over your head and really just do anything you can to minimize that um, because that's a big issue. Um, but, I mean, it's a big issue on the subway sometimes. So... Um, But, I mean, I I think as long as you're aware of what's going on around you, it's fairly easy in a lot of places to kind of slip in as a woman. I mean, I haven't heard of female journalists getting kidnapped in Syria who are Western, um, but I know a lot of men. And there could be some that I haven't heard of, but they they haven't been public. Um, Ben? uh, No, I I agree with you. Um, (laughs) um, But what was that amazing? Someone wrote an article saying, where are the female voices? Yes, somebody did a a big article for the, I think it was The Guardian, did a big article early in the year that said, where are all the women covering Syria? And every woman covering Syria was like, we're here. Here we are. You should should see it, because it was (laughs) like probably more women than men covering it and doing amazing. And there was this like war on wherever it was, Twitter or someone. It was was incredible. Our core team of five at um, News Deeply, one is a man and the rest of us are women. and it's a pretty diverse group of women. So I think, uh, I think the situation is better for female journalists than you think. Um, there's a nice camaraderie, at least among the foreign press corps, of um, trying to help each other out. So, yes. Um, I, I teach at uh, Parsons Design and Technology, and um, most of my, in the MFA program, all my students are if they're not making games, they're influenced by games. And students more and more each year are creating projects that bring the narrative of gaming to news. And um, Karen, I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but one of um, my students is working on a branching narrative, choose-your-own-adventure way of telling the story in Syria, and his prototype has to do with... uh, the Syrian refugee camps, and if I passed you my card, would you <laughs> mind if uh, uh, he got in touch with you? Because, Not at all. Yeah. Hand it down. Okay. And uh, <laughs> listen, I really admire what you're all doing, and thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. A little networking here at our panel. <laughs> <laughs> um, right there. Just... Hi, my name is Anna. I'm a producer. Um, I wanted to know the journalists what kind of security measures you take to um, file securely. Do you use Informacam? Um, I know Benetech is working on an app called Mobile Martis. I'm curious uh, if you take any security measures, especially seeing the recent security breaches, breaches there have been. That's a good question. I mean, communication, I take precautions, but I'm, I'm normally bringing cards back home to then. You know, we're not, not broadcasting. Stuff. So it's you, you know there's lots of countries you go when you hide the memory. It's got a lot easier. It used to be you had to try and hide these tapes this size. We're hiding memory right. cards. We That's do that right. So yeah, mostly communications. I mean, I think one of the reasons Marie Colvin was was killed in Syria was because she was doing live broadcast, yeah. and that, that's almost like sending a flare up. Saying I'm here. Yeah. 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 I think sending. that has to stop. But there's so much. If you're somewhere that no one else is, there's so much pressure to do live reports all the time. And even rival news organisations. I'm saying, please, can we just interview you for 30 seconds? And 
and hopefully now that stopped, but that was, that was making things much more dangerous for people at one point. I mean, there's nobody reporting in Syria now who's not using a VPN, and I, I use one most of the time in Turkey. I just always have it on every one of my computers, every one of my, on my iPad. Um, our site got hacked last year um, from Iran, I think. And so I know that there were a lot of precautions taken after that. Um, but a lot of journalists, I mean, there's stuff that goes around. We have like a secret Syria group for people who are covering Syria, and a lot of information gets passed around about programs that you can use to encrypt your email or encrypt your contacts list. And then there's all the basic stuff when you're on the ground, and I'm, I'm sure Ben has similar stories where you're being, you're going to get frisked on your way out of a hospital in a country during a revolution, so like you take your camera chip out and you like put it in my bra or something, um, which goes back to the advantages of female reporting. Um, <laughs> But there's, there's a lot of security measures you can take, and I, I don't know anyone who's had major breaches like on their email or of their contacts who was taking simple measures. I don't know if you have, but I haven't heard of. There, there were some Iranian journalists based in London working for the BBC, and from Iran they hacked into their emails yeah. and were putting fake pictures to try and make out they were involved in orgies or porn or something, just to try and discredit yeah. them. Um, that happened for quite a while, and then were messaging family members back in Iran as well, saying all kinds of things had happened that hadn't. Um, Vivek, can you speak to that same question from the citizen journalist perspective? Yeah, I, I would be probably even more cautious because yeah. governments, particularly repressive governments, are unbelievably smart. Um, I mean, they can hack into almost anything. So sometimes when you communicate about people or with people, if you're not using encrypted email, for example, you are actually endangering a lot of people yeah. around you. Or, you know, the Burmese government used to hack into any activists. Like, they, you know, you download an app and you give permissions, which I'm sure you guys do all the time. At that point, you've now given permission to the government to look at your entire address book of other activists. So governments are unbelievably smart. So there's, and they're, they're like Benetech, you mentioned them. There are some groups that are doing really good work on that, but it's really important. Yeah. I had a funny incident yeah. where we used, with communicating with Pussy Rat and stuff, we used chat secure and hide my ass and things like that. But one of the fun things, when they were still in jail, that we would do is you would kind of call up on the phone, normal line, and speak to someone connected. And then you would set a meeting at a certain place. And then you go to a different place, uh -huh. but it was agreed upon different. And then we would just kind of observe and see the, it's this thing called Center E in Russia, it's for Center for Extremism. And they show up and they kind of hang out and they're confused for a while and you can kind of observe it from <laughs> a distance. That's great. I know that the, the lines you know, can and, and are blurred, and at the same time, there, there are differences in um, documentary film and journalism as um, storytelling practices. And so I'm interested to hear what your thoughts are on how those two practices can be mutually supportive in yeah. terms of really getting stories out and raising awareness. It's a great question, and sometimes that line gets blurred. Um, Eli, you want to start with that one? Uh, you don't have I'm to. I'm the least qualified, I think. Uh, <laughs> well, except for that your site kind of incorporates a little bit of both, no? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we don't think of ourselves as journalists. It's not, mm -hmm. you know, I, we have deep respect for um, what, what journalism means. We do think of ourselves as kind of, uh, you know, curating in a very factually driven way, um, you know, great stories. And... You know what? What? What we see um, is this. 
you know, it used to be, I mean, in some ways, when you talk about documentary, it used to be what you were talking about was a 90-minute film that showed in theaters. And when you're talking about journalism, you were talking about things that go in newspapers or on TV broadcast. And, you know, these traditions evolved as a function of the mediums that they were associated with. And now what's happening, which is totally fascinating, is, you know, it's all happening in the same place. And the citizen video, the docs, the advocacy group stuff, the journalistic reportage are all, you know, sort of in the same place. Um, and so, you know, for us, we have a, a team of fact checkers that actually sort of goes through everything on the site and makes sure that um, it's it's not just sort of literally true, but also sort of true in a in a larger way. Um, but uh, you know, but but those formats matter less than they ever did, and new 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 formats are constantly emerging that are sort of. Uh, not quite, you wouldn't quite call them a documentary film, you wouldn't quite call it, uh, you know, a journalistic report. It's something weird in the middle. I think that's the, the exciting thing about the moment that we're in is, is um, the, the content isn't uh, described by the sort of shape of the container in the way that it once was. And, I mean, if I can speak for a second on behalf of kind of old formats, because you know, for me, it's it's very important that I'm not a journalist, I'm not an activist, like my brain just doesn't work in that way, exactly. And a lot of times, but I'm interested in doing stories that are kind of political and that have journalistic interest. And then, in a way, you do those stories and then you try to Trojan horse as much, whether it's ambiguity or something else, into it that doesn't quite work. And a lot of times when you get questions about what your intent is, and I have political opinions, I have all these things, but... If I'm being honest about it, the process is this strangely myopic, artisanal, you're working with a small detail and you're just working with this material and the truth that it kind of has. And it's this open-ended thing that you're following. And I think that journalism has a kind of informational commitment that drives it. And I think that there's, it's really important, I mean, to have, I think, documentary making and to have filmmaking work on a different principle just because you get different knowledge, you get different access to reality. Because a lot of, especially a lot of humanistic elements really, I think, undercut a lot of our ideological and fa factual understanding of the world. And I think that it's important to embrace that and embrace those. And I think that to a certain extent it's been lost as journalism and um, documentary filmmaking have come together more. I think we have time for well, one last guess. <laughs> Maybe two last questions. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, I was just, uh, I teach at NYU, and I was just uh, congratulating everyone on the panel that many of my students are very interested in what they do. One of the issues we're dealing with lately is net neutrality and the future of what that looks like with 40% of uh, Internet access being sort of taken over by Comcat, potentially, if the Justice Department uh, approves it. Um, also, in terms of, Eli, in terms of future, in terms of algorithms, in terms of your guys' access to being marginalized in that way and the stratifications of stories, like in Ukraine, between what Stephen Cohen says we've, the West has gotten the Russian point of view completely wrong, and we could be leading ourselves to a very thorny picture. And last but not least, in terms of dealing with the, when the printed brick and mortar meaning the times and stuff like that are no longer there as conduits or the guardians for people like Edward Snowden. How do those people who need to be protected in order to get the, whatever truth out, what are those challenges? How do you deal with those? 
So kind of a softball to close this out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, from, from my point of view, if I heard you right, you know, one of the questions is kind of what, how durable are the channels that we rely on in order to actually get this stuff out there to a large audience? Um, and, and there are threats from a bunch of directions from, um, you know, as the internet gets more consolidated in the hands of a few big companies, that's a real question about what, you know, what, whether this kinds of, whether our sort of idea of the open internet is going to remain, you know, viable. Um, you know, and, and likewise, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing um, increasing challenges to, uh, you know, as, as the definition of journalist blurs, um, certainly this administration, you know, is trying to use that blurriness to retract some of the protections that journalists have typically had. Um, and so, you know, that's another front that makes this harder. Um, and then, you know, m my concern has always been uh, as the world increasingly, you know, reaches people through the lens of Facebook and through the lens of Twitter, you know, what do those algorithms do to actually make sure that these stories make it all the way through? Um, so I think, I, I don't, I, I think it's, it's absolutely concerning and I think um, we're past the point where we can be triumphalist about, you know, oh, the internet's here and now all of these problems are solved and as, and as the people who are doing this media, we also have to be concerned about the structure of media and, um, which I am. Uh, but I don't know if other folks have. When we were so utopian about the extent to which the internet was this democratic thing, and it does break the barrier to entry in so many ways, but then obviously a lot of other issues come up. And, so, and I think we're in that morning after period now. I'm going to let, I have to, uh, we've got to wrap up. But that I'm going to let you, since like, you were the good news bearer, I'm going to let you <laughs> give us a closing thought. No, my closing thought is actually one, two, one, Eli's wife made an incredible documentary about net neutrality, and he's not going to plug it I, I was, <laughs> himself. Um, so, it's um, called The Internet Must Go, and it's very funny. Nominated for Webby, and so is our human rights channel on YouTube. So uh, this is the last day you can actually vote. Um, <laughs> I think the, the technology is enabling many people to expose what's going on in the world, it makes going back to Thomas Jefferson, it, it's a tool to be informed and if you have an informed society, you mean you have a, it means you have a better society and I think that is something that needs to be supported through net neutrality or just making sure that people are safe and secure when they tell their stories. But thank you for closing on Thomas Jefferson and bringing us full circle. <laughs> Max Posderovkin, Eli Pariser, Yvette Alberting-Ting, Karen Lee, Ben Anderson, thank you all so much for being with us today and thank you for joining us today.